My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. Each and every week, we desire to take theological principles, biblical stories, and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you to immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune in to this online broadcast each and every week, and ways you can support our ministry is first, follow our Instagram page. Then, if you would, like our Facebook page. You can listen to this broadcast each and every week and make comments underneath whatever social media channel you listen to. And you can financially support our ministry through our website, ResonateLife.org, under the Give tab. So you are joining us live. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties on our first live broadcast a few minutes ago. So we are starting late today, but we are hoping to get caught up on our material tonight, Thursday night at 8.30 for this broadcast. This will be replayed as a part of our Sunday morning broadcast as well at 10 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on Sunday. Every Thursday night, we are coming together for this to, well, I guess come under a better understanding of the material that we are covering. So call this a deeper dive. So if you've been following us online, you will remember that we are in a series called Atlas of the Heart. And today we are talking about the biblical view of emotions created with others. So I'm joined today with Sharia Bodner and Jake Flug, two of my leaders at Resonate. So I think we're all here now. Good evening, Jake and Sharia. How are you? Hello. Good evening. Good. You know, I think we need to just kind of regroup. Um, should we re... Uh, is everything set for our evening tonight? And are we, uh, are we I think, live I think we're good? We're doing go? okay. Okay, good. I know what I'm, I'm doing. Glad. You know what you're doing? Great. You were the only one that could be heard earlier. Um, That's so exciting. that was exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. <laughs> that you're the only one that could be heard. I missed, I I missed a it. big opportunity there. You did. You <laughs> did miss a big opportunity, huge opportunity. All right. Well, uh, anything, uh, we, do we need to recap Johnny Depp and, um, Amber Heard? Do we need was, to recap anything there? How, how, was That's that last week? I haven't really followed it. You haven't followed that? Not really. Oh, okay. Oh, bummer. I thought we would have some great insight or some kind of epiphany that we could uh, we could share nah. with one another. No? I noticed his cologne commercials were back. I noticed that too. I noticed Interesting. that too. Yeah, he's gained a popular 4 million uh, TikTok fans in literally like, I guess, uh, overnight. Well, so the case was one on TikTok. Oh, it was. It's amazing. Yes. TikTok is such a is such TikTok, a thing. TikTok TikTok law. No longer TikTok, TikTok medical. It's no longer TikTok medical. It's uh, it's TikTok law. Awesome. But uh, okay. I mean, you have a pretty big announcement from from Mark Cuban. I do. I do. So I I just have been researching around and just poking around, and a friend of mine, his name's Patrick, kind of sent out this message. Mark Cuban for the 2022 win. So. Uh, this is just we are not endorsed by anybody we do not obviously promote. not <laughs> obviously not so we don't really promote anything but mark cuban has started a company um that is just breaking um i don't know breaking some norms that i just love so 
one of Mark Cuban's missions is to uh, not undercut, but just give medications to people of underprivileged status, but also just people who um, don't have access to medical, whether that be lack of insurance or in-between insurance or um, just high deductibles on their insurance. And so what he did is he started this, uh, he started this pharmaceutical company called Cost Plus Drug Company. And basically he finds companies to produce drugs at cost and he adds 15% to those, um, to those costs. And so some examples of his drug company is there is a drug sourcing uh, company, drug, drug sourcing company. There is a drug called amatinib. I have no idea what amatinib is used for, but it is $14.40 for a 30-day supply. Retail price on that is $2,502. If you were ready, if you were going to wow. buy that on the on the open market. I was seeing $1,000 a month for AZT drugs for AIDS patients um, given for $50 a month. So those are some pretty phenomenal uh, prices for those people who don't have access to healthcare and they, they're struggling. Um, but I just thought I'd mention that tonight. So go to that website. If you have friends that need access to pharmaceuticals at cheap prices, um, you, I mean, it's just crazy. $4, $6, $10, $20 for pharmaceuticals $150, $200, $300, $400 a month. So it's, it's making it so that you don't have to make the hard decisions of this. Right. Or that. right. Right. You don't, you can actually get the care that you need. All right. Well, that's uh. so Sheree and I did some, uh, here's another interesting thing we did this week is Sheree and I did a deep dive into Mark 412 and, and, uh, I just texted her one late one day and I said, Hey, I need you to drop everything. Cause we need to do a Greek and a Hebrew study. So she did. And a friend of mine, his name's Jake as well. He reached out and, and wanted to know about Mark 412. So we, we talked about Mark 412 a little bit. And what's interesting is when we deal with difficult passages of scripture, like Mark 4.12, which refers to Isaiah 6.9, uh, God closed their ears and shut their mouths so that they could not be saved. Things like that that are said in Scripture, paraphrased, of course. Um, what are we supposed to do with those? Or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What are we supposed to do with those? And we always have like these nuances. We play around with it. We try to like soften it. We say, well, but, you know, in context of the other Scriptures, well, books stand alone and so in context of what other scriptures if you're reading that book and that book alone um what are you supposed to do with the book of isaiah because that was memorized in the temple as a standalone book so or three and if books. that's the only scroll you have right so those three books of isaiah basically like kind of were a standalone thing so honestly you you just can't do that um you can do that now but you can't do that then so what do you do with Isaiah 6, 9? They shut their mouths and close their eyes and so that God would not save them. Uh, so Shreya had some good points. So when you look at the Old Testament, so this is what we do here um, on these evenings is things like this. When you look at the Old Testament and you see things like, you know, God sniped out all these people or murdered all these children or 
you know, laid waste all of these, you know, infants in Egypt or Isaiah 6, 9, you know, cause them not to be saved. What do you do with those? And, and Shreya, go ahead. Give us your, yeah. give us your conclusion. Uh, like two verses later, I'm trying to pull up the text so that I can look at it. Um, yeah. But like two verses later after that, so they won't be saved part. Um, Isaiah says, how long? And God says, until. Um, yeah. And it's not a very happy until, because it's until cities lie ruined with no one living in them. And until there are houses without people and the land is devastated. Um, yeah. So bad stuff's coming. Um, but there's still that until like there, there is an end point. Um, and so we had been talking about how, um, that verse is used in Calvinist theology to, you know, say that God sends people to hell and, you know, if you're saved, you're saved and you can't unsave yourself, but if you're not saved, you can't save yourself. And, and it's all just very final. Um, but this verse shows an endpoint, um, and I think that while it is uncomfortable, and we do have to wrestle with the uncomfortability, that endpoint is is where the redemption comes in. Yeah, but and there's but. a but here, but or an and. that and or but oh, I don't know, but and <laughs> so, so that endpoint you can actually interpret that as the end of time. It's like apocalyptic in the end, like yeah. all all things lay waste, right? But I really liked what you say a lot of times about these scriptures have to do with empire, and yeah. they have to they have to do with the leaders of empire, and we need to put them in their proper place when it comes to, um, interpreting them for ourselves, because really those verses, uh, like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that 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 is Pharaoh's verse. That's his verse. That's not, that's not every person on the planet's verse. And so we need to make sure that empire verses stay empire and people versus stay people. Yeah. And sometimes the verse hits differently when you're talking to a person in power versus a person who isn't. And two thoughts on that. So God hardening Pharaoh's hearts are hard, I should say. In the next the next sentence is so that, right? And so there was there was a purpose and right. I, I believe right. I believe the next is so that God will be known. That they will know me. And then you have Right. I mean Isaiah I don't believe can have any connection with end of times. And it has more to do with Why like not? the destruction. <laughs> uh, um, has more to do with the destruction of of uh, of of Jerusalem, Jerusalem during the Babylonian yeah. conquest, and so that's when the destruction will will end, so that their hearts True. will be so hardened that the destruction True. will happen. So, I mean, Isaiah is looking at something in Isaiah six. What is it? Six nine. So that Isaiah was the one that was looking toward the destruction. The next Isaiah was the one that was looking at destruction. And the final Isaiah was the one that had gone through destruction. But wouldn't you say that like the destruction of Jerusalem was their end times? 
It was, was an the end time. Yeah, that it was, was the an end yeah. time for them. Didn't they think that the whole world was going to end right at that point? I'm sure they did. I don't. I don't know if the whole world, but they definitely knew that their world was ending as they knew it. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it. So this morning we're having this discussion. Jake and I are having this discussion this morning at another group that we belong to, and and in that group we were listening to uh, Richard Rohr. And Richard Rohr was talking about the Bible and how to interpret or what to do with these gods having a bad day verse, you know, or, or Jesus is not doing well verse. And so what do we do with those verses? Do we just ignore them? Do we run away from them? And it was really interesting. The the discussion because most everybody around that table in our group this morning do not believe in what's called the inerrancy of scripture where scripture is like word for word perfect dictated from god and most everyone around the table you know was in agreement agreement with the idea of of the bible is what they call fallible in its content in this form. And we brought up the concept that the Bible is fully written by God and fully written by humankind. So those two people groups or those two persons that were writing the Bible, basically one is God is infallible and humankind is fallible so when you have those two entities interacting with one another the bible is going to be human at some degree and so some of these verses were seen or written through the lens and seen through a lens context of war of killing of well the way that a victor is victorious is the king kills the enemy and so that whole storyline is displayed so the firstborn in egypt or whether it be um what are some of the others the canaanite genocide right the canaanite genocide uh i i would even say some of the the war themes that you can or misinterpret out of the book of revelation that those are also seen in through lenses of war and victory where evil is sniped but evil within people and evil of people is sniped so that so people are dying and and so you just really have to be careful i think with scripture to not fall into a trap of thinking that it's an illumination piece of material in front of you that is like so so perfected spiritually that it that it can't have like Error. problems and challenges and even errors uh, amongst it because we know that certain scriptures contradict contradict one another certain scriptures um, don't line up with others mm-hmm. and sometimes scripture uh, says things that's like well that just doesn't line up to the Jesus that's displayed in the Gospels. So, so yeah, we have to think through those what I'll call theological, biblical minefields 
that we get ourselves into and we can get ourselves in trouble. You guys have any thoughts about that before we get into our topic tonight? Lots. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something that I, I think about is that um, I imagine there's a lot of scripture that is people trying to understand their experience of God and using the language that they had to write about it. I find it interesting the mindful passages that we talked about, especially like um, the killing of the firstborn, mm-hmm. um, and through the uh, the with the angel of death, also the Canaanite conquest or Canaanite genocide. Um, historically, those have no archaeological evidence to support them, mm-hmm. either of them. Narratively, we have hooked into that because I think it it suffices the national narrative that we also carry. That that war violence is an act of God. Mm-hmm. Yet we see it play out in Israel's national narrative that it may not actually be a thing. Right. And even within the narrative, you have one book saying that they completely wiped out the Canaanites, and then in the next book, there are the Canaanites. Totally. And the Canaanites, there they are in the New Testament somehow. (laughs) Right. Well, something that I brought up this morning was I have a, I'll call him a theologian. I have to be careful with that word with this person, but they're a try to be biblical scholar and they continually say that I want you to have a good relationship with scripture. And I would have to say that I understand the language. I understand what's trying to be communicated because I want a good relationship with the text too. You know, I don't want to be constantly just angry at the text and what God is saying. Uh, Yet, when we constantly say that we have a relationship with Scripture and not a relationship with Jesus, we're to have a relationship with Jesus. And the relationship with Scripture, um, people didn't even have Scripture back in the day. People didn't have the Bible back in the day um, the way that it is now. So, like, how do you have a relationship with Scripture without Scripture? It just kind of doesn't make sense. So, the constant talk of knowing God's word and having a right relationship with God's word and um, being able to interpret God's word, those, those kinds of like, even those um, actions are just very new. They're not, they're not old. They're, that's all new, you know, and probably with new within the last hundred years new. So uh, because, you know, back in the day, people did have commoner Bibles. Not, not everybody had a commoner Bible. Not everybody could read. So if you can't read, can you have a right relationship with scripture? It just doesn't, doesn't play out, I guess, in my Christianity. They're very privileged and right. Yeah. Yeah. The and... ones that could afford it had a Bible. Yeah. So, so, uh, I, I brought up and I'm gonna be very careful about how I say this is I believe that, that, in certain passages and other people have agreed with me. So I know I'm not alone in this, that the Bible 
Jesus has never failed me. Um, Jesus and Jesus and his promises have never failed me either. The Bible has. And I look at like certain scriptures where I read along and babies are killed. That's where the Bible fails me. Um, when I look at these difficult passages of scripture that don't make sense, that's where the Bible fails me. So, so the Bible, that's where the humanness of the Bible comes into play. Uh, so over my evolution of the way that I understand scripture is I find more beauty and more sacredity and also more of God's word in the narrative story of the Bible versus like the historical accuracy or whether or not these stories played out like Noah, did that happen? Jonah, did that happen? Genesis, did that happen? You know, I'm not even interested in having those debates or even having that conversation because it's like, well, it doesn't really matter because Jonah's about redemption and salvation and resurrection and it's it's all about the well, the so idea Noah, right good good yeah right I yeah. mean they're all about the same cyclical story so so if we can't capture that idea first and foremost you know looking at the history of things really is you know just a mental exercise that's futile so yeah that's my thoughts on that those are just some initial preliminary. Let's get into our topic before we completely lose it. <laughs> we can go for the next 25 minutes and just be. Cold. Yeah, and, and be done and do this next thing. All right, places we go. Atlas of the Heart. That's what we're in yeah. today. And we are talking through the uh, biblical idea of emotions and what the Bible says about emotions. <clears throat> and so places we go with others. And these are in our relationships, acquaintance relationships, quasi, you know, deep relationships, deep relationships, spouses, marriages, uh, partnerships, whatever relationships that we are in. These are the places we go with others. Compassion, pity, empathy, sympathy, boundaries. We're going to talk a little bit about that more because there's more to boundaries than just one kind of boundary. And then comparative suffering. My suffering is more important than yours. So compassion, pity, empathy, sympathy, boundaries, comparative suffering. That's where we're at tonight with Atlas of the Heart. So Sharia is going to take yep. our first two topics of compassion and pity. Yep. So compassion and empathy are often used interchangeably. Um, and Kevin's going to talk a little bit more about empathy in a moment, um, but a quick bit of nuance to work with for now um, is that compassion is one of the tools of empathy. So when we have empathy for others, we're engaging compassion. Um, Brene Brown defines compassion as a daily practice in which we recognize and accept our shared humanity so that we treat ourselves and others with loving kindness and we take action in the face of suffering. Um, so compassion comes from a place of knowing and accepting that we all have strengths and weaknesses and that life is sometimes a struggle for all of us. Um, compassion doesn't come from a place of better than or of I can fix you, um, but from our shared humanity and our <coughs> shared suffering. Um, in the Bible, we see 12 times um, just in the Gospels um, that Jesus was moved with compassion. Um, and the Greek word there is, it's a fun one. It's one of my favorites, um, splagnizomai, 
which has to do with one's guts. This is why I call or... upon you at like nine o'clock at night. We got to have yeah. that. Yeah. Slug yeah. me <laughs> Guts, viscera, bowels. So compassion comes from a place that's deep within us. I like that a lot. The contrast between, you know, I love you with all of my heart versus I love you with all of my guts. You know, like guts just has so much more oomph guts. to it. Yeah. yeah. My large intestine loves you. That's right. <laughs> I love you from my large to small intestine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long, that's, that's a lot of. It's like it a is. mile, right? Of, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know. It's. A lot of feet. Jesus was moved with compassion from the guts. Yeah. Um, yeah. In Matthew nine thirty six, it says, "When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd." So Jesus feels compassion because the people are troubled, and he recognizes the humanity they share. He knows what it's like to feel troubled, um, and he takes action by healing and by teaching, um, all the while treating people with dignity. Um, so an important piece there is that compassion is not hierarchical. It's a relationship between equals. Um, and that brings us to the idea of pity. Pity is hierarchical. Um, there's a Buddhist idea of a near enemy, which is a state of mind that's similar to the one that we um, want to embody, but, and that's the near part of it. Um, but that actually undermines what we're trying to achieve. Um, pity is the near enemy of compassion because while it looks similar, it comes with an implied hier hierarchy. Um, it says, I feel sorry for you. And maybe that sounds okay at first, but that typically comes from a place of at least I'm not you, or I'm better than you, or your suffering is inferior to me. Um, it isn't the shared humanity that we see with compassion and a place that we see this in scripture is with the good Samaritan story where you have the Levite and the priest who see the man who is beaten up and robbed and left in the streets and they might feel a little bad, but they cross on the other side of the road because they don't want to be involved. Um, Something I think about when it comes to compassion and that idea of shared humanity um, comes from a book by Charles Eisenstein. Um, and I believe the book is um, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible. Um, and he talks about something that he calls situationalism. And that is choosing to adopt the belief that I would do the same thing if I were you. So it's looking at somebody else's choices and situation and saying, well, I might not get it. I might think you're dumb, but if I lived the life you lived and carried the story you carry, maybe had the trauma that you have, I would make the same choices that you are making. Um, and the way that levels the playing field and pulls you out of hierarchy and privilege and kind of brings out the dignity in the other person, I think is part of building a practice of compassion. In the practice of compassion, it's thought that we could have compassion fatigue. 
Mm-hmm. What have you guys ever experienced that or? Oof. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, I guess me saying that's like, I don't help people enough. So I'm just, I'm good. I don't have compassion fatigue, but I know that some people, other people have compassion fatigue. So, uh, yes, I have had compassion fatigue, but what, what is that like for you two? Cause I know what I it's like for me, but one way that shows up is, you know, with, with how connected we are to what's happening all around the world. Um, mm. we, we get a front row seat to a lot of suffering. Um, and it's really exhausting, um, to feel bad for everything all at once. Cause there's a lot to feel bad for. Right. Absolutely. How about you, Jake, any compassion fatigue? Um, I, I don't really want to say yes to that because um, Brittany Brown writes that compassion fatigue occurs when caregivers focus on their own personal distress rather than their experience of people that they are caring for. So It sounds wrong, <laughs> but eventually you have to, right? I mean, at some point you have to focus yeah. on your own distress. Um, right. Of course, of course you have at any extended period of time where you are, you're feeling like you're handling the burden, I think, is when it becomes a, when it moves from a, from a joy and a, a co-suffering or a co, like compassion, compassion means to, to walk alongside a belief or something. If you look at the actual, like, etymology of the word, Right. Um, but the, when it turns from carrying the load from each other to carrying the load solely and the other person as well, that it becomes dutiful. I believe that's when like compassion fatigue sets in and you just kind of shut off and retreat for yourself. At least that's what I do. Cause that's my, I'm, I'm focused on my own distress rather than the stress of others. I think it's simply for me when I start adopting other people's problems as my own. Hmm. So when I, when I just slip into that mode, uh, that happens. It becomes your story and not their story. Well, yes, possibly. Uh, I think more like I, I start caring more than that person cares. I start doing more than that person does. Mm -hmm. I think it's an easy codependency to fall into when you're in helping type professions uh that's why counselors go to counselors and and therapists go to therapists so we all need a we all need a little therapy to kind of bounce ourselves out of codependency mm -hmm. well let's talk about empathy because uh oh, compassion. can we go back can we go oh, back yeah, go to compassion Please. real fast sure. um i think a big point of compassion especially in the old testament um the word for compassion is the womb. And so Shreya talked about the Greek side of things. I'll, I'll take, I'll take the Hebrew side of things Good. that the, the idea of, of compassion is that of a mother and a child. And so when those, the, and so when God had compassion or God heard their cry or God was moved to compassion or um, the references in, the Old Testament are, are plentiful 
that um, you see the the wombness of God is the compassion of God that that the love will cover. It's a justifiable, natural love, a protection. And so like when Jesus talks about, oh, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you under my, my wings like a hen, the, uh, that's a image of compassion, the wombness of God. And so even so the Shekinah, I believe as well, mm-hmm. is attached to that. To that compassion that's the the femininity of of god is the shekinah glory right so that's awesome. compassion thank you that. yeah that's that's good stuff so let's move on to empathy and sympathy empathy is kind of in a sense confused with compassion a lot of times because we really don't have definitions around it but empathy is actually a tool of compassion so we need to be very clear that empathy is not compassion. Compassion is not empathy. What's uh, really interesting about empathy is it's actually a neurological function of our brain where it used to be thought that when something happened to us or to, excuse me, when something happened to another person, our visual cortex would engage and we would see tears we would see pain we would see and then our visual cortex would tell us oh that's pain and i've felt pain before and so that's that's how our brain they thought and for a very long time thought worked and the new research shows our neurological function of our cortex our our um, executive function actually then kicks into play so our visual cortex we see pain we see something happen we see the child that is suffering or the family that's suffering so our visual cortex we see that that's why it was really that's why it's very difficult in modern times uh to visualize and our our visual cortex is constantly being inundated with war so what's happening in ukraine the pictures that we see of the ukraine we have our visual cortex is very activated um, at that point. But empathy is caused when our brain actually mirrors the experience for ourselves. So that's our executive function. So we then begin putting the building blocks together in our brain, remembering times that we felt similar and what it is like to feel the way that that person feels today. So if something's happening, we see the child suffering, uh, we start putting together in our executive function, our visual cortex is activated, our executive function then mirrors that experience in our brain. So it's actually a mirroring of experience that we, it's a deeper level of just seeing something and going, oh, that's sad we're actually experiencing a neurological um, experience. Mm. We're a neurological function that's happening in our, in our brain. So they, they call it catching emotion. We're actually catching it like almost like a cold. Uh, we're catching emotion. So I guess that's just a little bit of science for us, a little bit of psychology, neurological biology. 
uh, neurobiology for us, just looking at the brain and how empathy uh, functions. So Sharia talked about and mentioned the Buddhist concept of the near enemy. There's also the far enemy. And the far enemy is very easy to recognize. So the far enemy to love is apathy. Some people think it's hate. It actually isn't. It's apathy. So love and apathy are far enemies. And when something is very far, uh, it's very easy to see. So you can see somebody's apathy when they just don't care to the point of showing that they don't care. It's very difficult to swallow. They go, oh, geez, look at that person. They're just... That is the most horrible, like, action. I was giving examples there. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Of facial expressions. Um, So when we have apathy, it's really easy to see. When we have love in comparison to apathy, it's very easy to see. It's like just, it's not, it's not, it's, it's one and the other. It's not just nuances or shades of a certain color it's just very distinct so so that is the far enemy the near enemy is very difficult to see so again the near enemy of emotion that's a brain thing and our brain sometimes struggles differentiating near enemies so those are so close in our mirroring of in our executive function that we we don't know how let's say Uh, to mirror something or we mirror it differently or we mirror it maybe the opposite of what they're experiencing or we don't understand what they're experiencing. We're not asking enough questions of what they're experiencing. We're not listening to what they're experiencing. So then we end up with this near enemy of sympathy. So we have empathy and we have this near enemy of sympathy. Some people think that sympathy is a good thing in my research of empathy and sympathy i would say that sympathy is not a good thing it's it's almost like it's almost like pity where you have a hierarchy where you're up here oh you poor thing i think about like the royalty looking down on the peasants going oh feed them cake feed them brioche you know give them Give them the scraps, those poor, poor people, right? So I think about, like, that's pity, right? But in a sense, sympathy is similar but different. So there's no hierarchy in sympathy. It's not some royalty looking down on, you know, the queen looking down on her subjects going, oh, you poor people. Um, it's, It's in a sense identifying with that person on an equal level, but then doing nothing about it thinking about it feeling sorry for them knowing their knowing, experience yeah knowing their knowing their experience i'm glad i'm not you <laughs> you know that's a part of sympathy like sucks to be better you. you than me um you know sucks to be you all those all those feelings that's actually a form of of sympathy so the question that i have in empathy and codependency is how do we have a mirroring experience without adopting their challenges and dysfunctions and problems and hurts, habits and hangups as our own. And Jake's going to talk about that here in a minute. But empathy is an emotional skill set. And I wish that right now um, in our political landscape, we would have more empathy. We need more empathy. I I think empathy is lost in our culture. 
we actually have a lot of pity, we have a lot of sympathy, but we do not have a lot of compassion, we do not have a lot of empathy. And I think biblically, when you look in scripture, what is the roadblock to uh, those, what is the roadblock to compassion and empathy? I would say is pride of the heart, pride and arrogance. Um, those, you know, you could say all sin is kind of a roadblock to compassion and, and empathy uh, because I think that sin just clouds our judgment and clouds our visual, even visual cortex. Um, but I would say more, it's the sin of pride where we are so prideful and arrogant that we can't see ourselves in uh, another person's place. I can never be there or I would never want to be there or they got themselves there on their own. So we, that's the kind of attitude we have. So sympathy is, is not, excuse me, empathy is not walking in another person's shoes. That's codependency. Empathy is listening to another person's story about walking in their shoes and then believing them when they tell you what it's like to walk in their shoes. So there's a, there's a misinterpretation, I think, especially amongst the Christian world, when we look at emotions and somebody's like really in pain, you know, why are you crying? Um, what's your problem? You know, it's, you have Jesus, have joy in your life. You know, greater is he in you than it is in the world. And we have all these like little, you know, catchphrase. Yeah, this platitudes, but like scripture catchphrases that we throw at people um, because we're not listening to what it's like to walk in their shoes. And even if we would say, that doesn't bother me. Why should that bother them? That doesn't bother me. We don't say that. That's not empathy. We look at another person and say, uh, I'm going to listen to you. You don't say anything. We're going to listen to you and know what it's like to walk in your shoes. So I would say that, as I said on Sunday morning, this last Sunday morning, there's two types of, of religion. There's, there's piety and perfection and rule following. And, you know, basically I'm going to avoid punishment because I don't want to go to hell and I'm going to do a bunch of stuff to get my reward. And then there's another form of Christianity or religion that is the journey of empathy in our lives. So sympathy, um, sympathy, or excuse me, empathy is universal. And it's really hard to have empathy for your enemy. Um, I think we do need to have empathy for our enemies. We have to look at our enemies and love our enemies. So how do you love your enemy? I mean, look at your, look at your enemies today. The people that you have an empathy for. Well, define... Rob, you want to throw up? Do you want to throw up uh, your uh, Facebook message there? I think that's a good one to start with. As I watched today's footage of one six twenty one, never before seen, I felt a sense of extreme fear, anger, and also compassion. It was very easy to point out enemies while watching and feel pity with no empathy while watching those that stormed the Capitol, while only feeling compassion for the heroes of that day. Yeah, it's really so. So leading off of that, the people that you have empathy for define your enemy. And so the challenge that we have 
in our neurological processes of our brain and how we mirror experiences. I can't mirror storming the Capitol. <laughs> like I, I don't have that like image. I don't even, my visual cortex is like, what are you doing? Stop, you know, stop talking. So like that's sometimes I listen to news uh, channels and I just, just say, stop talking. Like I say it out loud, like, a, you know, like I'm, <laughs> having a conversation yelling back at the screen. Yeah. I'm yelling back at the screen. Just stop talking. Um, I have a few of newscasters that I visually uh, verbally say that too out loud with maybe some expletives attached to it. But, but I, I have empathy for a certain kind of person, which defines my enemy, but Jesus teaches us that empathy is universal. So the challenge that we have as Christians is who is your opposite? Who's your enemy? You have empathy for these people over here, but who is your who is your enemy and how are you actually going to journey through empathy for those people as well? So, like, let's just bring it up, you know, gun control or or, uh, you know, this the Second Amendment. Uh, there's a lot of angry people out there uh, when it comes to the Second Amendment. Lots of people are angry uh, on one side or the other of the right to bear arms. So we have these AK-47s and these uh, AR, AR, what are they, AR-15s? That's what they are. Um, not AK-40, I guess AK-47s too, but AR-15 is like the 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 weapon of, of choice, I guess, right now that's trying to be so protected. And lots of people are angry. You take that away from me, I'm angry. You put that in somebody's hands, I'm angry. So the anger is the common emotion. There's lots of people that are angry. I don't think anybody wants children to be killed. So nobody in this discussion wants children to die and nobody wants them to be gunned down. So, so we're actually closer in emotion and conclusion than we want to admit when it comes even, to even moving past beyond anger i think in this we if we just go with the polemics of all politics especially with with rob's with rob's post it has more to do with with fear i believe oh yeah definitely mm -hmm. then fear, well fear on both sides fear, fear on both sides in, totally 100 percent that put that in the hands of somebody that's, you know, a like whack you job or you can't visually understand storming a federal building. Right. Well, I can visually but, see it, but I don't understand it. But yet. you can't visually, you're, you're not moved to empathy right away or compassion. And so, no. but you are visually and can be with fear or anger or, distrust mm -hmm. or with mm -hmm. uh, yes. feeling feeling taken from or s things were stolen from you right right like that those are the primal emotions and the, the very human basis of existence i think also gregory boyd said this morning that the lowest level of um consciousness Consci is the lowest level of consciousness is, is status Security. and security yeah and so when those two things are threatened we move completely into fear and anger 
And so status and security is, is the, the basis of all human consciousness and emotion at that point. Well, when you're functioning at level one, yeah, that's right? what you got. <laughs> that's it. When you're functioning at that first level, I think there's a lot of people in our world today that are functioning at that first level. That's why there's so much anger in our nation right now. And we're so divided as a nation. So if I could just like clean this topic up of empathy and enemy is we think about these examples of enemy, right? So if you're a progressive liberal, or if you're a conservative person of, of some kind, right? Like whatever, whatever nuance you take of those two parties, a lot of times in politics, we think the other is the enemy. And that's just a normal, almost natural response to politics is if I'm a part of a party, I'm against another party. You have an and enemy. And whatever labeled. policies and whatever laws and whatever programs that other group is trying to establish that I am against right but the but what i've noticed is all of our anger all of our fears like you said jake or our insecurities call it that um we share a lot of the same emotions and possibly in the end want now i'm going to be careful about this because some people want different things but but i guess in our shared humanity i think a lot of us want very similar things. We want very similar outcomes. Um, and so, so whether it be a abortion issue, whether it be a houseless population issue, a gun control issue, a, um, you know, a race or racist issue, uh, or, you know, CRT in schools or, or whatever it is, whatever the, the topic that we're discussing is, I think that Jesus looking at all those topics, I would have to say he had universal empathy. He never didn't agree necessarily with what they were saying, but he definitely had, uh, the look of people that they were people first not objects and i think that that's very very important as we have objectified so many people and looked at them as objects that's where we get into sympathy sympathy is we mirror their experience or we begin to think okay i could see myself in that position but then we don't do anything about it and that's what sympathy is is we just look at the situation and not act or we don't advocate or become an ally or whatever whatever terminology you want to put on it so james 2 15 says this suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food if one of you says to them go in peace keep warm and well fed but does nothing about their physical needs what good is it and so it's what there's James is saying is that it's no good. And so a religion that does not act, uh, and we just say, go in peace, 
um, but we don't do anything about needs or about the situation at hand. Uh, that is sympathy, but in a sense, that's the near enemy of empathy, and we need to be very careful of that. So empathy and sympathy. I think with Sheree's compassion and my empathy, we need to grow in that as Christian people, and we have failed. I will say we have failed as the church to show compassion and empathy towards people and as Jesus calls us to love our enemy we have failed in loving our enemy as well and the world sees Jesus and loves Jesus but does not does not like right now what the church has done with Jesus and his words that's all I got go ahead there Jay go. Um, something that, that came to mind with empathy is that Jesus becoming flesh or God becoming flesh mm -hmm. in the form of Jesus is, is our model Christian model of empathy of shared experience of Jesus, not walking in everyone's shoes, but understanding his own shoes. Mm -hmm. I think that's, that is the basis of our, of our thought of love. Do you think Anymore? that we, we think too hard or too deeply about Jesus feeling and experiencing all that humanity feels and experiences? Do we think too hard or too deeply what about that like what we come mean? to that we come to that conclusion that well jesus experienced everything and jesus experienced all of what i feel and have experienced in my life i think that uh, is a generalization that can't be can't be matched well i, I think. think so too i think that we kind of come to that conclusion sometimes yeah. when like jesus had an experience i don't think jesus had my experience Right. So we look at, right. you know, a, a woman who lost a child, you know, stillborn child. Right. Um, you know, we say things like that to her. Well, Jesus, Jesus knows every sorrow. Joe knows every sorrow. And he know he, he experienced everything and the ultimate pain on earth. And so Jesus understands your pain. I think understands is okay. Yeah. Has known and experienced is different. I think we take it too far. That's all yeah. I'm saying. Totally. Yeah. Those are, that's another Christian platitude of empathy. I think we need to be careful of Jake, take boundaries and comparative okay. suffering. What are you going to do with that? <laughs> what are we going to do with that? I'm actually going to do an opposite. Cause I think that, uh, the outline is, or her outline is a little bit backwards. I think boundaries is, is the end goal of this, especially with comparative suffering. It also deals with, with a misconstrued idea of boundaries. Um, mm -hmm. So Rob, if you want to throw up Jonah four, one through 11, it's one of my favorite passages. One of my favorite books in the Bible, uh, Jonah, we can talk about that some other time. Um, but at this time, Jonah got spit up by the whale, preached to Nineveh, Nineveh completely changes. 
repents, turns toward God, which was the uh, capital of the Assyrian Empire, which destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Um, and not Judah yet, but yeah, they were not the best people. So Jonah 4, 1 through 11 is about Jonah talking about the um, the suffering that he has to go through vis-a-vis -vis the suffering of the Ninevites and why did God make him suffer? Wow, that is small. So <laughs> I'm just going to paraphrase and say that God provided Jonah a shrub and it grew over Jonah providing him shade over his head. And by the way, Jonah was bald and that was kind of a, a joke in the whole story as well. Uh, Jonah was very happy about the shrub, but God provided a worm the next day and at dawn and it attacked the shrub and the shrub died. Then God, the sun rose up and God provided an east, scorching east wind that beat down Jonah's bald head so that he began to came faint. He begged to die, saying, it's better for me to die than to see all of this. And God said, is your anger over a shrub a good thing? Yes, my anger is good, even to the point of my own death. But the Lord said, you pitied the shrub for which you didn't work or which you had didn't raise and it grew at night and perish at night. Yet for my part, can, can't I pity Nineveh, a great city in which there are more than 120,000 and we know those numbers just means the perfect number of people who can't tell their right hand and their left. So a perfect number of people are just dense in this city and also many animals. So comparative it's suffering. To me that, it's funny to me that the translators chose to use the word pity there. Yeah. After all that time we spent. Pity. That's your so the, favorite, one of your favorite verses. It is That's one of my it, the irony. The, it's it's a it's more dark. of a Jonah's a more, great book. I know. It, but that's your favorite passage of scripture? I said one of them. <laughs> one of because them because Jonah is a book of irony. Totally. The whole thing is an irony and in the end of Jonah is is complete complete irony because you have the southern kingdom would be reading this passage. Um the common thought is that Oh gosh, Amos wrote the book of Jonah. If I don't fact check me too deep on that one, um, some. But the uh, that up actually. The the Southern Kingdom had to read this and say that God is going to save the very people who destroyed. So that's that's another another story. Um, which also kind of heaps coals on the heads of the uh, God is destroying the Egyptian firstborn and killing the Canaanites and all these things, but God is also saving them on the other side too. And Jonah preached to a non-Jewish city. That's also a very big point. Um, comparative suffering is when you look at somebody else's suffering or your own suffering and say that I don't deserve to feel. I think those 
those words are the the basis of it all where i don't deserve to feel this way because blank i i have to eat all my dinner because there are starving kids somewhere or when we got into covid it was a big thing that um i shouldn't be grieving over the loss of an event that i couldn't go to because um, somebody else's spouse died or their parent died over from covid or the the isolation that you're feeling well that's for the greater good so you just need to buck up and do it right and so there was no acceptance of the emotions that we were experiencing um and so it is a is a it is a trigger in empathy actually and to have self-empathy is something as well that we didn't talk about um but a a empathy misfire is if you think you had it that bad just look at this or minimize your own suffering or minimize their suffering walk away and so acknowledging the that master at that i'm a master at that as he said no i'm a master at that oh, okay <laughs> oh. Uh, anyways oh you think the, you got it bad yeah look at this i got it bad look at this i can one-up this <laughs> so i totally lost where i was going with that i'm sorry comparative suffering in jonah empathy misfire yeah it's an empathy misfire which is true it is an empathy misfire because when you devalue somebody else's experience or you invalidate their emotions, I think that the, that if I can bring up the church again, the church is notorious for invalidating people's experiences and emotions. That's why we're in the trouble that we're in. And, uh, and that's an empathy misfire. That's empathy misfire, but comparative suffering and empathy misfire is self-reflective. that my my suffering is not greater than anyone else's or i don't deserve to feel this way because somebody else's suffering is greater than mine that's kind of the opposite of negatively comparing your suffering correct mm -hmm. yeah got it yeah and so then we go to to boundaries and Boundaries is is what we're going to land at tonight, um, because all of it, all of it has to do with how we engage with emotions. And so, if you come out emotions, or you come out situations, or problems, or people, without the expectations or the the thought of what is a safe space for me to be in, or what is a safe distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously that quotes from parentis hemphill boundaries is that is that distance or that space that we have to create so that we don't go on the i think we talked about the slippery slope from empathy to codependency right how how do we and also compassion fatigue according to Brene brown happens when we don't have or have not established uh, the expectation of boundaries, the, the taking on other people's problems or um, the continual stress 
of issue after issue after issue and no resolve. I think that's also compassion fatigue. But the if we don't have a clear spoken or written expectation of how we are going to engage and whether that is just for yourself or with some for somebody else that that you're having to engage with this in that you can be walked all over because you because it is the human nature i think to go from compassion and empathy into codependency I think I'll say that. That's safe. Any thoughts so far? Well, I mean, yeah, I was just thinking about some of the leadership things that I've done and, and groups that I've led over the years. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Bethany Stoller actually helped me with for um, quite a bit is she helped me form for this dysfunctional group that I was a part of and trying to lead. She helped me form group norms and group norms in leadership or group norms in groups. And that could be your family, that could, your group could be your family. The group can be your community group or your Bible study you're a part of, or it could be the church. It could be your workplace, whatever it is. Those groups, we need group norms. And group norms are like policies or values or rhythms mm -hmm. or whatever we want to call it. Um, communication strategies or whatever that we come up with that make us function better. And I think that mm -hmm. I think that when people use the idea of boundaries as distance, I think uh that's just one form of boundaries. It's often misused. You know, you guys yeah. need some boundaries. Yeah. No, no, you need to work out your challenges and your fights. That's what you need to do. And, and so that's what that's what's usually said when somebody's fighting and can't get along. And you guys need to get some boundaries. But there's no definition on that. When there's when no definition, better, there's no expectation. It's just right. So so what that family or that couple like in marriage counseling or whatever, what they need is they need a group norm. They need a rhythm. They need a strategy when they talk to one another. And it could be as simple as this active listening skills. Yeah. So somebody says something and I say, what I heard you say is this, like. that's actually a group norm and a form of a boundary that we speak in that fashion. That's our boundary. <laughs> And so think, most times that people just kind of throw out the word boundary and they really yeah. don't know what they're talking about. That the phrase has become abusive and that's the yeah. issue as well is that boundary has became a, a, a like a trigger word. I think there's the well, book, the book boundaries. Yeah. 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 Totally. yeah. Um, and it, that I mean, even that book leaves the space for people to be abused by boundaries because if there's no, there's no time limit put on it, right? Right. There there's has no, to. Uh, there's no resolve, reconciliation. There's no resolve, no reconciliation, no change. It's just this is this is the boundary I set up for myself, and so I'm going to hold to this, which is great for a time period. But those things have to be reassessed. Mm -hmm. I think the 
putting up a wall of boundary just because you want a boundary in your life is an act of pity hierarchy rather than a an act of compassion because not having boundaries with people as well doesn't help them be better either but that has to be for a certain time right i think boundaries can help protect you when you're unsafe but they're not meant to protect you from feeling uncomfortable and i think they often get used just when we're uncomfortable um and unwilling to step in that uncomfortability in the relationship yeah yeah because like we have opposite belief paradigms let's say so Mm -hmm. our belief boundaries I believe something different than you. Let's say, Shreya, you believe something different than me. And our boundary is we're going to respect one another's different belief ideas. Mm-hmm. That's a boundary. That's a respect boundary of belief. That's a belief boundary where you have a certain vein of what you think about this thing, whatever it is, and I have a different one. So we're going to respect one another. One, one way that I exercise my boundaries is I do not exercise my right to free speech all the time. I do it in this podcast. I do it on Sunday morning and I do it in the groups in person that I'm with. I don't get on social media and rant. I don't attack people on social media because it's my right to shame them. I don't do any of that. I don't exercise my right. That's a boundary because boundaries, I think ultimately, Jake, you kind of alluded to it, need to land on love your neighbor. And if I, mm-hmm. if I can't exercise a sense of stoicism and control, I need to set my own boundary. I'm not going to exercise my right to free speech all the time. I think some people need to take a lesson there. <laughs> many, 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 many. Yeah. So boundary protects both, both parties. Yeah. But I think again, the common understanding of boundary put out by a certain book, the title will be unknown for now is that it it is the protection of you and that, and that you are going to abuse the other person by establishing boundaries. Mm hmm. That's what I got. That's good. Any other thoughts, Sharia? Nope. Closing remarks? I think all of this is really important. I hope everyone learned something from it, just a little bit here and there, of you know what actually being moved with compassion is, what empathy is, uh, and what boundaries are, and how all three of those do land on loving your neighbor. They all land on loving your neighbor. That's the greatest command. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Um, I think that if we would put these tools in practice, that our world would be a better place. Our church would be a better place. Uh, We would all live uh, different lives. Less divided, less angry, less, 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 and all the negative. So... So we need to be watchful again of our near enemies 
that the things that we think are okay are not okay. Uh, we need to engage our executive functions in mirroring and experiencing, but then also acting, as James would say. We need to act out in these things. All right, that's all we got for you tonight. So I hope you enjoyed listening. And if you listen to this in the future and you make comments, we will uh, respond to those comments in the future and try our best to keep up on uh, future uh, listeners and watchers um, that pick up this um, on a different night or day than Thursday at 8.30 until almost 10 o'clock tonight. So with that, thanks. These are the emotions that we experience with others. Compassion, pity, empathy, sympathy, boundaries, and comparative suffering. I hope you learned something tonight. I sure did. Good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Good night.